Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today, our reading is going to come from the book of Revelation. The fifth chapter of the book of Revelation is a divine thought today that I want to impress on our spirits tonight that I believe is going to change the way you have been praying. Somebody shout hallelujah. The way you have been praying. Because you see, prayer has degrees. And not all of us pray in the same degree or dimensions. Not all of us pray in the same places or habitations spiritually. Even when we join our faith to pray together, we're praying from different places spiritually. We don't pray from the same places. See, you can sit in a meeting of 10, 20,000 people at a stadium, believing God for a miracle. And there's two or three people in that stadium who have enough faith for that miracle. The rest are just adding to that faith. Scripturally, we can add to that faith. So, there are people who have not yet exercised themselves in the dimensions of faith. And so, some of us, our prayers are still small. We still pray from a very small vision. You know, your personal life, you're praying to God for a job. And then you spend nights praying to God to get you a job. Or you spend weeks praying to God to get you a wife or a husband. You spend years praying to God to get you a child. And yeah, you need these things. You can ask for them. And the Father has promised to give those things to us. Those are lower places of prayer even though they will come with answers if you believe. Those are lower places of prayer. They're higher dimensions of prayer. And as you awaken to higher dimensions of prayer, so do you understand the responsibility of prayer. In fact, you understand the spirit of prayer. Somebody shout hallelujah. So in the book of Revelation, the fifth chapter, the man of God, John, saw in the right hand of him that had sat on the throne a book written, within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. The Bible says he saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and lose the seals thereof? So there is a book, it has writings on top and at the back of it, and the man of God is weeping, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and lose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, the Bible says, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. The Bible says, and I wept much. This is John weeping, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look upon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to lose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns 
and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And they came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of orders, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. John the Revelator has given us an account of an event that took place somewhere in a certain eon, which for some could be past, for some could be present, for some could be future, depending on how you interpret scripture. But you see, the beauty of scripture is that it is new every day. You understand what I'm saying? Because he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. So there are many things that we can apply today were applied in the past and can be applied in the future. God does not speak into the future as the future because to him it's the first. That is why Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we were healed. Somebody shout hallelujah. hallelujah. So we see a time in history where John had a vision and then he sees a seal. And this seal must be opened. And then he whips a match. And of course later, I will explain why John is whipping. Because some people may ask, why is John whipping? I'll answer that a bit later. And then we are looking in this text for somebody who is worthy to open the seal. And then the elder comes to John and tells him, uh uh, do not weep. There is one which is worthy to open the seal, even the Lamb of God which was slain. And then, as he introduces this Lamb of God, he speaks of how he has seven horns, the Bible says, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent into all the earth. Now, I could have gone beyond and teach what I'm supposed to teach tonight, but please allow me to touch that for those of you who are curious. What are the seven horns? What are the seven eyes? Now, if you read it again, he said the seven horns and seven eyes are the seven spirits sent forth into all the earth. That means there is something about these seven horns and something about these seven eyes that define the seven spirits of God that are sent forth into the earth. And biblically, horns represent power. The number seven, you all know, represents completion or fulfillment or perfection. So we see a perfect or fulfilled power when we talk about the seven horns, and we see a perfect and fulfilled vision or insight which represents the seven Eyes in Zechariah, the fourth chapter, the tenth verse, he speaks about the seven eyes. He talks about the seven eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. But God says that the horns and the eyes are the seven spirits of the Lord that are sent out into the earth. The seven spirits. 
So does that mean that God by essence is divided into seven parts? No. He's talking about the seven dimensions of the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit on the earth. Somebody shout hallelujah. He's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And because there are seven distinctive functions of the person of the Holy Spirit, these then are defined as the seven spirits of the earth. And he is saying that the complete revelation of his power, which are the horns, and the complete revelation of divine vision or insight are both defined within the ministry of the seven spirits of the Lord that are in the earth. Isaiah teaches about these seven spirits in Isaiah chapter 11, the first verse. He says, And there came forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, if you read the original translation Hebrew there, he says, The Spirit of Lordship shall rest upon him. That's number one. The Spirit of what? Lordship. And the spirit of wisdom, praise God. And what? An understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge, six, and of the fear of the Lord. Those are the seven spirits of the Lord. The function of the person of the Holy Spirit is defined in these places of his ministry that he teaches us the lordship the spirit of lordship what it means to submit to one lord but also operate in the spirit of lordship on the earth that's dominion you see he teaches us how the spirit of wisdom functions he teaches us how the spirit of understanding functions he teaches us how the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. You see that? It's very important for us to understand that. And it's also important to understand that when you talk about wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, all of these things touch our spiritual intellect. Somebody shout hallelujah. That is why Jesus taught more than he did anything, more than he prophesied, more than he did anything. He was always teaching because the person of the Holy Spirit is primarily a teacher. The Bible says it is a good thing that I go for. If I do not go, the counselor shall not come. He speaks of him as one who will teach us all things and remind us that which we have forgotten because he shall not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, he shall speak. And the Bible says, he shall show us things to come. He's come to glorify the Father. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to heal a man of cancer. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to give you wisdom, is to give you understanding. The place of lordship as of to submit to one Lord or even operate in the anointing of dominion and power on the earth is best described in the experiences of that walk in the wisdom, in the understanding, in the counsel of the Spirit, in the knowledge of the things of God, 
and of course, the fear of the Lord. So he tells us, when you get these seven functions of the person of the Holy Spirit, you get the picture of what it is to function in perfect power and perfect vision. Why do I insist on that? Because very many people do not have a vision of God. They think that they have seen God, but they have not seen God. They do not have a vision of God. The Bible says they worship whom they know not. They worship whom they know not. That was a challenge with the Sumerians. Jesus tells them, you worship, you know not what. You don't know what you are worshiping. And that is why they used to look for him on the mountains, thinking that when they go to the mountains, that's when they'll have a good relationship, a deeper place of seeking him. Am I against going to the mountain? No. But it's a problem if you think that by going to the mountain, you are seeking God more than the man who is locked up in his room. Because a time comes when those that seek him must seek him or worship him in spirit and in truth. The problem with our believers, they end only in spirit, but they don't understand in truth. They define the convictions of spirit, but they're not aligned to the principles of truth in seeking God. And they assume that they know God. They assume that they know God. They have turned the image of the incorruptible God into the image of the earthly things, the elements that he created, like corruptible man, birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Why? Because they do not know God. To have the true vision of God is a wonderful experience because this then defines, like I have said, the wisdom that will operate on your life, the understanding in which you will function, the knowledge of God on your life, the counsel that will come out of your spirit, and of course, the fear of God. When a man does not know God, it's evident the things they will do or say that are proof that they don't have a fear of that God because they do not know him. They assume they do, but they do not know him. So, likewise, we cannot function in complete authority and power, the seven horns, without understanding the power that is given to us through the spirit of lordship, the wisdom that we're supposed to function in, the understanding that we are supposed to function in, the knowledge and counsel and the fear of God. All of these things are one. There's a person right now praying to God to give them an anointing to heal the sick. And sometimes I want to ask them, do you have the wisdom of God in healing the sick? Do you understand the intonations of the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of healing the sick? Do you understand divine counsel in the realm of healing the sick? Do you know what is the fear of God in the exercising of the power to heal the sick? And they do not have a clue, but they want that power. How? For what? What are they going to do with it? The Bible says, do not appoint a novice. List out of pride. The Bible says they will destroy themselves as they're lifted up and they'll be condemned of the devil. And he says, do not appoint a novice. Sometimes the appointments is not when we put somebody in a position of service. It's one of them. But also sometimes when we give a novice what they're not supposed to have because they're too young to have it. It's like getting a three-year-old child because you have the ability 
to give them a car to drive, and then you trust them to drive a car on a traffic, a highway traffic. You see what I'm saying? Because their mind is not yet awakened to the judgments of the Spirit to know how far they can go and what they're able to do. I've had little children, and I remember one time a couple of years ago, there was a little kid that I knew very well, a young guy, and then one time I parked my car and he says, can I drive, Apostle? Steve, you know, you can drive? He was about five. He says, yeah, I can drive. I said, who told you? No, I just saw my daddy drive and I knew that I could drive. You just press here and then you do this and then the car moves. That's how he sees. See, I cannot get into his brain to explain to him that there is more in driving a car because he doesn't yet know the difference between moving a car and driving it. You see what I'm saying? So even if you got to his level and told him you cannot drive it, the brain has not grown or matured enough to reconcile intellect and experience for him to be able to judge that he's not able to drive it. To know that you don't know is a very important thing because it means that you have been exercised by experience and your intellect is aligned enough to judge and that's the hunger that provokes you to seek to know. But what about the one who does not know that they don't know, but they want to be teachers? The Bible says desiring to be teachers of the law, not knowing what they say, nor from whence they are firm. They don't even have a source of their convictions. Or perhaps they have language, they have vocabulary. They can speak good English or any other way. And we confuse semantics with revelation because they can arrange letters right and connect sentences well. We think that that is speech. It is deeper than that. Because it's not just the proclamation of the mouth, but it's the authority from which a man or woman speaks from the experiences they have had in the instructions of God. Somebody shout, hallelujah. So, it's important for us to understand the function of the Holy Spirit or what we call the seven spirits. How these things connect to the horns of power to the eyes of vision and experience. Because in Zechariah, he says, these eyes look to and fro. They're roaming across the world. They're roaming across the world. Revelation is seeking men than they are able to seek it. Understanding is seeking men than they are able to seek it. God is not far from us. No, most times we are actually far from him. The Bible says that he has made of all nations one blood to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, comma, if haply they might feel after him, comma, and find him. Now listen to the last line. Though he be not far from every one of us. God is not far from us. We are the ones who are far from him. The power of God is not far from you. You are the one who is far away from it. And how are you far away from it? By the wisdom under which you function and what's available for you. By the understanding, by the counsel, by the fear of the Lord. That's how things are far. So when he tells you, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. In fact, the literal translation is, draw near to me and you'll see that I'm near you. You see? I'm near you. I've always been there. God has never left us. He's dwelling in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And can you believe that that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside the believer who is carnal, who is acting carnal, who is speaking indifferent? That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead with all the depth of the riches of Christ tapped up in that one person, dwelling in you. People are still reading the Bible and they cannot understand it. They cannot interpret it. They don't have the right compass spiritually to discern that this is truth and this is fallacy or lies or deception. You see what I'm saying? So it takes a certain place. It takes a certain place. That is why what I'm sharing, and let me be very clear, is for the mature. What I'm sharing right now is for the mature. It's going to be hard to understand it if you just got born again in a few weeks. But don't worry, I'm speaking to your spirit and your spirit is edginess. Somebody shout hallelujah. So back to what we were sharing. John the Revelator seems concerned that he sees a scroll and the scroll is sealed and it cannot be opened. And the prayer is who is worthy. He's not saying who is able. We're not talking about the realm of ability. We're talking about the power to be worthy. Who is worthy to open and read the book to lose the seals thereof? Now for you who reads the Bible, I want you to go back and ask God. If you are looking at a seal that is written on the front and the back, isn't there a possibility that you can read what's at the back? Because your eyes can see what's at the back. If I had a piece of paper like this one, right? And I folded it and I put a lot of information inside, but that part of that information inside also bears words on top like that. That means you are able maybe to read two or three or four or five lines of what's on top. It will not be the complete counsel. It will not be the complete information on this document, but it could give you clues. You see, it's also possible to read the back of a seal and assume that you know the whole context and assume that you know the whole document. It's possible. And this is going to be hard for some of you to take in but I've had people teach and I see they only have a clue of something they've read but they've not read fully. They have connected to something spiritually and they have read but they have not gotten the full account. See what I'm saying? When Priscilla and Aquinas meet Apollos, the Bible says that he proclaimed, he was teaching the doctrine of John the Baptist, the baptism of John. Deep fellow, the Bible says he was fervent in the spirit and he was mighty in scriptures. He was a man of scriptures. He read the scriptures, mighty. The Bible calls him mighty. The Bible called him mighty in scriptures. Apollos was eloquent in speech and mighty in the scriptures. So the Bible says he came to Ephesus and the Bible says he instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit is spoken taught diligently the things of the Lord knowing only the baptism of John. See, knowing only but he was fervent. Knowing only but he was teaching the way of the Lord. 
Now, the Bible doesn't say he was teaching in the ways of the Lord. The Bible says he was teaching in the way of the Lord. And the Bible says in the 26th verse that as he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, one Aquila and Priscilla had heard and they took him on the side and they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. One group of people might have not been eloquent and great teachers. They might have not been so deep, but they knew the perfect way of God. There's a man teaching in the way of the Lord and there's a people who know a more perfect way of the Lord. They had to take him on the side and help him understand that yes, you are teaching, but you need to see the whole text. You only read the back. So a man can read three or four lines in the spirit and still be fervent and still be a wonderful or eloquent speaker, good orator. Like I said, it takes great maturity for somebody to understand what I'm saying. Somebody shout hallelujah. Shout hallelujah. So let's go back to the book of Revelations where we're reading the fifth chapter. So we see a man weeping. Why is he weeping? I'll tell you why he's weeping. Because John got the revelation that whatever was written in that scroll sealed, had some to do with God's plan for the church. Had something to do by design with God's plan for the church. If you read the story, the master had just ascended. Persecution had begun. Quite a number of the disciples had been killed during that time. And his man writing is exiled at the island of Patmos, also threatened with death a few days. In a few weeks, a few years from the ascension of Jesus Christ, with all the power and life that they have been revealed to, with all the knowledge and revelation that they have, in that time it seemed that the church was at a disadvantage. Rome was running after them, were being persecuted left, right, and center. They were being killed. In fact, if you read church history from Nero, right? All through to Diocletian, 10 emperors, they all persecuted the church until 70 AD when finally Jerusalem was besieged and the temple was broken. Forever to be forgotten as it was thought by the Roman empires. But you see, God is amazing. Christianity 2021 is still being followed and there are believers in the world who not only are sold to the gospel but could die for it if you desired it. Somebody shout hallelujah. Nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop the gospel. So anyway, back to this. Of course at that time, there are tears saying, what is your plan for the earth? Now that the church is persecuted, many people have been killed, some are maimed, you know, some are even hidden underground. What plans do you have? What is your mind for the church now? In such an hour where we all believe that you are God, but every evidence with our physical eye is spelling questions. We're challenged. He's weeping because he sees that in there there is something only God knows and the one which is worthy to open that seal. But if it is to be opened, then a divine plan shall be revealed 
or the church. There's an answer. There's a certain understanding in his spirit telling him that there's something about the destiny of the churches, of the ministry of God on the earth, and it has to do with that seal. It has to do with that scroll. Now, I will not take you into the conversation of seals and scrolls or scrolls and seals because not many of us are able to take the things that I'm going to speak to you. But I can attest before the Lord that I have seen, I have read certain things spiritually. I have been graced by God to read certain things and which for me have defined my mandate and assignment on the earth. I am not the only one in the world. I know that there are many men and women who have accessed some of these things that I'm speaking about. They are not able to explain it. But I also know that a familiar spirit can assume that it has read. Are you hearing me? But if it has, then the wisdom, the understanding, the counsel, all these things will come together in the definition of the function of God and his purposes on the earth. It's one thing to pray for a job, for a car, for a husband, for a wife, for children. But here we see later on in scripture that as the seal is opened, the Bible tells us the four beasts and the 24 elders fall down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of orders, which are the prayers of the saints. We see from then on, that even though there was a hunger spiritually to open a seal on a scroll, some saints somewhere were praying. And partly their prayers were responsible for the quickening of the person of heaven to walk to that seal and open it, to go to that scroll and unveil it. It had to do with the prayers of certain saints. In the book of Revelations, again, if you go now in the eighth chapter, third verse, he speaks of another experience of how another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden sense, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. We start to see that there is something about what God will do, will open, will unseal to reveal his plan and will concerning a dispensation and it is connected to a certain saint somewhere who has prayed for it. Ladies and gentlemen, that saint was not praying for a job. Now I'm talking about the highest place of prayer. See, many of us say the higher calling in which we are called. What is the higher calling? What is the higher calling? Do you know the higher calling? The higher calling is the highest conviction a man has concerning divine purpose in their era, in their time, in their generation. That's the highest calling. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean? That when you get to a point where your conscience, your conviction is aligned entirely to understanding the will and purpose of God in your time, for your time, that is the highest calling because it's the revealer of the heart of God in your dispensation. 
That man is not praying for a wife. That man is not praying for a job. That man is not even praying for healing. That man or woman has been opened to a certain responsibility that goes beyond the need of their time or their hour. The things that can minister to their flesh or their soul, but the things that reveal the urgency of the heart of God and of the Spirit in every dispensation. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, not many people have been pressed into that place of travail. They do not know what it's like to pray for a nation. Not to just be rid of a bad leader or bad this, but to pray for a nation because you want it to be aligned to the will of God concerning the history, firstly, of that nation and the future as God has spoken it. And then that goes out of that nation. It goes to the continent. It goes to the races. It goes into the ethnicity backgrounds. It goes into the generation. It goes into the age brackets. It goes into the picture of the church. Where are we as the church? Where are we as the church? Where are we as the church? How many people, believers, men and women of God, who are alive and present in the time of COVID, and many of them did not even have the boldness to pray for the sick when people were falling on the streets and dying every day. And we are proclaiming that Jesus is the same today, yesterday and forever, that he is a healer and that by his stripes who were healed. How many people died before their time? And we have accepted it that it is normal and okay because they died of a virus that scripturally we were not supposed to die of because he has told us who is in us and what is working in our body. You see what I'm saying? The church is so political. The divisions in the church of Jesus Christ are so appalling. And I've never seen a work like there is today in how successful Satan has been in dividing us. Cheap talk. In false witnesses. Many of them have walked out of love. The Bible says that if you have rebuked the brother three, four, five times, declare it before the church and treat them as a heathen. But how are heathens treated? We preach the gospel to them that they might be saved. We pray for them, that they might be transformed. Isn't it? It's how a heathen man or a publican is treated. Jesus did not tell us to abuse and fight the publican. He told us to reach out to them and give them the knowledge. If they're not able to take it, pray for them. The things that happen in our dispensation. As I read about a certain man of God who fell, he had a very bad fall as a minister. And I went to pray for him one evening. And the Lord told me, only I am big enough to forgive that man. But his spirit will never forgive him. The problem was not the man's sin at that point. The problem was that he had done something only God was big enough to forgive. And he was telling me that nobody could connect and submit to that big. God, to that big heart of God in forgiving the man which has fallen. Some of us who have seen things that are being done in the church of Jesus Christ today, 
And only God is big enough to forgive. Only God is big enough to deliver. Only God is big enough to still use those people. You see what I'm saying? Now, there are those who don't even have a clue about what I'm talking about. Because the conscience has been seared for so many years. And they cannot understand. The Bible says there's no, no difference between their right and left hand. So it's a hard thing for you to explain it. Because they will not take it. They don't understand it. Have you seen somebody do something or say something? And you're like, I might not be a preacher, but that is wrong. That is wrong. I might not be a man or woman of God, but that is wrong. And you cannot say anything because if you do, you're jealous, you're envious. You understand? But on the other hand as well, the question for me is, this man has been in salvation for 25 years. He's served God for 30 years. And it's not obvious that this is wrong. You see what I'm saying? Maybe the generations to come as well will also rate our performance and weigh our credentials and find us wanting. Who knows what God is going to reveal in the next dispensation. But even the thought that I could be judged less in the dispensation that knows more, at least let the man be judged less, but in the judgments of that man, there was still an instruction that gave the man who judged him wisdom. Because Solomon could screw up and still say, but my wisdom was with me. That even in his madness, his wisdom could still teach the church. But what about that dispensation where not only will they judge our works and say that these were off, but also that there was no ounce of wisdom that they could find with us in the hour when they need to dig out the ancient landmarks to see where they can find their own way and course. They have understood that there is a result of an old womb, but what happens to the time when they come to examine our wombs and they cannot even understand how these wombs carried seed? Yes, they know that it's a miracle. Granted. But was it a miracle done to men with ignorance? Or was it a miracle that worked in the lives of men who knew God? Because it's two ways. God can actually do a miracle for the sake of an ignorant man or in the man's ignorance. But also he can do a miracle in a man's knowledge. You see, he walks to a man and says, do you want to be made whole? You see, and the man tells Jesus, if you will, if you will, if you want to, you can heal me. He doesn't know whether Jesus wants to heal him or he does. Would I want to heal him? He doesn't know whether it's in the will of Jesus to heal him or not. And Jesus tells the man, I will be healed. And the leper was cleansed immediately. Leprosy left the man. But that man was not sure whether Jesus wills to heal or he doesn't. So it's possible for God to do a miracle in his infinite grace and mercy, even in the man's ignorance. You understand? It's possible. And then you see another experience of an Italian centurion, a Roman centurion. You remember? He walks to Jesus and says, my servant is sick. And then Jesus says, okay, I will come and heal him. And the man says, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy that you should come under my foot. But you speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And the Bible says Jesus wondered. He marveled and he said, 
I have not found so great faith, not in Israel. He's not talking about Israel as a nation. He's talking about Israel as a people because this man was not a Jew. And the Bible says the very hour, the servant of the centurion was healed. That man provoked a miracle in revelation and in knowledge. The leprous man got a miracle, but without knowledge. So that's what I'm trying to say. Did God do miracles through us by the knowledge and revelation that functioned in our spirits? Or did he simply do those miracles in spite of our indifference? Because if he did those miracles in spite of our indifference, then we have nothing to teach because we don't know better. But we should know better. I said we should know better. These things are so deep. These things are so deep. These things are so deep. So, why would John cry? He has seen what is happening at that time. And he has gotten the nudge in his spirit that there is something that will and can be done if a certain scroll is unsealed. And so he weeps. If you walked on John in a room praying, what would you think he's asking for? What would you imagine he's asking for? Perhaps there's somebody who would say, no, maybe he's weeping because he has had a brother, a fellow disciple that was killed a few weeks ago. Maybe he's separated from his family and he's missing his little girls and boys and he wants to be reconciled with his family. No, John is weeping because something needs to be opened and he knows it's connected to divine purpose. Do you know that all of us function and will have our pattern mark in the earth based on what has been revealed to us by God concerning his purposes in our times? Do you know God will never use you beyond what you are able to see? Do you know that God will never use you beyond that which you are able to understand? Do you know that God will never use you beyond that which you have no knowledge of? If he should, if he should, and I repeat this, if he should, it was only because he was pushed to fulfill a purpose bigger. But in the total sum of things, your lot shall not be defined. It will not go beyond the moment. Now, many of you say, oh, I want to serve God. What do you mean you want to serve God? Do you even understand the heartbeat of God in this time, in this hour? Do we understand what the mind of God is in this hour? Do we understand? Remember the time Jesus Christ walks into the temple? Then he finds people changing money and then selling pigeons and stuff. And the Bible says he comes and drives them out with anger. He says, my father's house is not a house of merchandise. It is a house of prayer. But have you ever asked yourself, at what point a temple, a place that had been consecrated for God, over the years evolved and evolved 
and evolved and the money changer entered and the man selling sheep entered and the man selling oxen entered and the man selling doves entered and do we see any account of the disciples grieving over what was happening in the house of the father no because their minds had become callous over the years getting used to what tradition was justifying as true because it was done by men which were gifted so it is possible for a man to be misled into doing something that they're not supposed to do because they saw an anointed man or a woman do it and it looked okay because the question is how is god continuing to use him or her in spite of this error if it is wrong you see what i'm saying and i'll say this as hard as it is we are followers of god and not of men and we serve men only because they serve god we should never forget that bible says the church in macedonia gave themselves over and to god and unto us his ministers according to the will of god So God will will for you to serve an anointing and sit under and serve a man as you'd serve God but only according to the will of God. Somebody shout hallelujah. That man vice of you have the right to flee. You have the right to flee. You see? But also that is relative because there are those who assume that the man is off yet they're the ones who are off. <laughs> but fruit defines that time tells time tells time tells anyway back to the issue here can i invite somebody to a higher realm of prayer a higher dimension of prayer and responsibility where somebody will pray for the revelation of what is hidden by god what is sealed by god because they've awakened to the reality that something within that scroll has an answer and let me tell you God is like that. He's a God of secret things and secret places. The Bible says that the hidden things belong to the Lord. That's how he works. In Revelation 2:17, what fell in the days of Moses's manner in Revelation 2:17 was hidden. The Bible says I shall give them to eat of the hidden manna. What we knew for manna in the Old Testament, it fell. Everybody saw it. The animals saw it. The people saw it. Everybody saw it. You see, when it comes to the New Testament, there's no such thing as visible manna. What is there is actually hidden. And there's a man who has ears to hear, uh-huh, and eyes to see, and the Bible says and to him that overcometh, I will give him to eat of that hidden manna. He's not overcoming demons or the generations and curses of his uncle. He's overcoming in the true war for the man to see what they must see beyond what God has written and to hear what they must hear beyond what God has said. That victory is what reveals the hidden manna. That's a man feeding from food normal men do not know and cannot easily access so in the dispensation when what you would call spiritual food is available even in that there is that which is hidden and that's the man who gives the white stone and on that white stone he writes the name that is only known by god and he that receiveth it 
He didn't say to him that is given. He says to him that receiveth it. So I'm thinking to be given that name, it's another for you to receive it. You see, Revelation 2.17, that is the glory of a distinctive anointing. That will make you different because it will name you among the names. It will give you an identity among them which are identified. It will make you an apostle among the apostles. It will make you a pastor, a distinctive pastor among the pastors. It will separate your voice from the noises. It will put a mark on you that says that you are different. When you are in that place, it doesn't matter how many minister, you will minister differently because yours is a mark. It's distinctive. It is defining you from the rest, yet a part of the whole body. That which defines you is actually that which defines your part. Remember the book of Revelations that he that taketh away or addeth to these words, the Bible says his part shall be taken from the book of life. Every man here listening to me has a part with God. You have a part. He has defined the church as a body of Christ, isn't it? Right? So that means we have kidneys, we have hearts, we have lungs, we have all these kinds of things, right? Spiritually. What are you? What are you? What are you? You see what I'm saying? So it's important also to ask, do I have actually a part? And is my part defined? beyond what I studied in theology school? Is my part defined beyond what was pronounced upon my life prophetically? Is my part defined in the spaces of my experiences and communion with him? It's a very important thing for us to understand. Because how do I get Revelation chapter 5 as I'm reading it and give it to somebody who doesn't even have a clue of this responsibility and they will understand it easily. It's a hard thing for them to get. These are not summons people want to watch and repeat. These ones are for few people because there's somebody who's looking for a job and for them, they're tuning in right now because they need a job. You want to be hired by men, but you don't even know what God created you for. Paul is saying, not that I've attained, but I seek that I may apprehend that which Christ apprehended me for. I seek that I may apprehend. Give me the amplified of that. Not as though, he says, I have attained this ideal or have already been made perfect, but I press on to lay hold and grasp and make my own. Listen, that for which Christ Jesus the Messiah has laid a hold of me and made me his own. Why did he save you? Why are you the one born again? Why are you the one consecrated? Why are you the one feeling this calling in your spirit, telling you that I have designed you for something bigger than a man could ever hire? There are people listening to me right now and you feel it every day. You wake up with that thing, you're growing older, but the cares of the earth can take you. Paul struggled with the boys that he lived with. You remember? He's moving with them. He's teaching the gospel. And as he's teaching one day, Mark is gone. Little Mark is nowhere. And then on the next journey, they're departing. And uh, he says to Barnabas, you know, I'm not going with Mark. Why? He abandoned us. He does not know why we are preaching the gospel. And Barnabas says, uh-uh. 
Be patient with this guy. Like we were patient with you before you understood. And that's mature. There are people who are Barnabas, sons of consolation in our dispensation, who never understand their ministry. They were the bridges that connected us to the places where we had failed to break into and have utterance. But they were the reason that gave us utterance because they had glory and a mark in the places where they introduced us when we were not yet trusted. When we were not yet trusted. But back to what I want to tell us. So he's grown old. And then he appeals to Timothy, I believe. He tells him, send me Mark. Mark has now been restored. He says, send me Mark to come and help me because he was later restored. And the lesson there for the Pauls of our day is how we should be patient with the Marks of our time, hoping that they can get it because some get it. Some get it. Some don't, but some get it. But then later, he says, okay, now Timothy, these boys have all left. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke has stayed. Please send Mark and bring him with me for he is profitable for me for the ministry. He says, Demas, has forsaken me. Having loved this present world and departed to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. They've abandoned me. Help me. You see, they have to send Mark to him. But what in Demas saw the anointing, saw the healing, saw the transformational power of God, had the revelation, sat under the man who laid the foundation of the New Testament. What in Demas would wake him up one morning and love the present world. What in Crescens would make him want to detach himself from Paul and go in Galatia to do his own business or Titus to Dalmatia? It happens. It does. When a man has not yet understood who they really are before God, somebody shout, Hallelujah. And now, when Paul speaks of how our conversations are in heaven, from whence we look for the Lord, what in heaven could we have conversations about except the fulfillment of the will and purpose of God in our dispensation? Now, I want to invite us into those kinds of prayer. When you enter that kind of prayer, your life will change. You'll stop playing in the things of God. You'll stop wasting time in cheap talk and chatter. You'll not sit in small conversations because you know why you were called by God. Paul says, even at that point when it is revealed, he still feels that there is a lot within him. He says, I seek that I may apprehend fully that which the Lord apprehended me for. Hmm. What a thought. Maybe he kept feeling that he was called for bigger than even that which was working in his life, even though he was laying the foundation. Now, me in 2021, I understand it. Why? Because I'm still quoting that man. Somebody fell on his works and put them in these 66 books for me to read. And these things have become the foundation of the church. They've defined histories. They've changed nations and empires. They are defining our times and our lives forever. And we're going to leave this world as stars shining so bright with a defined destiny and course because Paul wrote letters. So I wonder those who sat under his teaching, what did they hear? And how many which sat under Paul were able to apprehend these things? 
Because Demas could see that and still go back into the world. Demas could see, Demas could see that and still, oh no, come on. Judas Iscariot saw this man walk in a power like had never been seen in human history. Yet he was a chosen disciple. What would Judas have been if he had believed? God has no control over your choice to obey or not because he has given you a free will. Your heart and your spirit must give itself, themselves, to him in your own conditioning and deliberation. He's not going to force you to love him. He's not going to force you to serve him. What he will do, he will give you all that you need, the potential life and godliness, bless you with every spiritual blessing, the heavenly blessing of Christ Jesus. And how you deal with that grace and anointing is entirely up to you. So, tonight, go beyond the job. Because some of you, perhaps, you don't have a job yet because you're asking for lesser than what God gave you. Maybe you are not married because you don't even yet have a revelation of what your marriage is supposed to do in the kingdom. You're hungry to be married, but you don't understand purpose within the marriage. Maybe you believe in God for divine healing, but you don't even know why you should be alive in the first place. Somebody shout hallelujah. Glory to God. Now a lot is opening up and a lot has been opened. A lot has been opened. Those who read will read and those who cannot read will understand. The Bible speaks of the end times after the rapture in the times of the tribulation. He says as some will see these signs he says, he that readeth, <laughs> let him understand. It will be not just what they read in scripture. But I believe that even in that time, the people to whom God will open the scroll and tell them, you are in the end times. And as they read those signs in the spirit, they will turn to repentance. It's all about where we read and what we are reading. Now, I'm not talking about the books of the men and women of God you're reading. I'm talking about what your spirit is able to read in what God is revealing. God is revealing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. But for God to draw your heart beyond the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, to the responsibility and need, that's true hunger. For God to draw you to true hunger, to where you'll not just ask, but you'll actually weep in understanding. If you can understand what I just shared tonight, your part has been or will be defined very soon. In Jesus' mighty name. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to Thus saith the Lord, 
Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved you all and all, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for to trust Him more. Holy Spirit, we thank You. We thank You. May this word settle in the hearts of every man and woman listening to me. I know that I might not have the language and tongue to give it as I should. But still my conviction I will give to whoever is able to hear that we are being called. Your hand is not shortened. It is longer and far enough to touch any man. Your presence is not far. Your mandate is not far. Thank you for the life that we have and the opportunity we have every day to proclaim the gospel as you reveal what you have called us for. And for every man and woman at the sound of my voice, may you find purpose tonight and may it come so clear. May your responsibility be defined. May you grow and transcend in higher realms of prayer and the responsibility of the spirit of prayer. In Jesus' mighty name, we have prayed and believed, and all saints said, Amen. If you have never given your life to Christ, I want to give you an opportunity right now to receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. All you need to do is repeat these words after me. You say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you shed your blood for my sins, and was raised for my glory. Tonight, I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again. The message you have just heard was brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number 041-466-4291 or email us at fenerocompala at gmail.com. You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowships at Uma Multipurpose Hall from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can also catch the live stream at livestream.com slash Fenero. Fenero, make manifest.